What's up, rich girls? I'm recording this little intro in that terrifying period between Christmas and New Year's where, okay, tell me if anyone else feels this way. You know how after a night of drinking, you wake up in the morning and it's like, oh my god, I'm still wearing my clothes from last night. One of my eyes is glued shut from mascara. Like my memory's a little hazy. And you see your whole life, your whole day in a brand new light. Gone is the romanticized drunkenness of the night before, whatever you were doing that was so fun and exciting. It's like, oh my god, what have I done? That, I have a Christmas hangover. I will get a Christmas hangover every year where after Christmas, on the morning of the 26th, it's like I snap out of it. I look around me and I see the garland and the tree where the lights are like starting to flicker and go out and there's like boxes everywhere in a whole new light. And it's like, oh my God, what have I done? Christmas hangover. And then you're in that expanse of time until New Year's where nobody's really like working yet for real, but Christmas is over. You're like, what do I do? That is the time frame, the mindset that I'm in right now. So if that was you or you're you're still pulling yourself out of that, I feel you and I'm here for you. So today's episode is going to be a good one, especially if you are feeling that Christmas hangover vibe, because we're going to talk about all the stuff, all the stuff in the Christmas season. And as the episode would suggest, why nice things in particular might actually make your life worse. Yeah, I know. It's a little bit funky, but stay with me. We will get into it. Before we do, I just want to give a shout out to the sponsor of today's episode, Capitalize. Capitalize is a service that I found at the end of this year, kind of at the perfect time. I had just left a company and had a fairly sizable 401k balance that was just chilling. And because I noticed some crazy fees that were happening in that 401k, I wanted to get it under my roof as quickly as possible. So the reason that I love Capitalize is it makes the process of rolling over a 401k utterly painless, like ridiculously painless. You you really don't have to do anything. You just tell them, hey, this is where it is. This is about how much is in it. And this is where I want you to put it. Then when it's time for you to have an actual conversation on the phone with your 401k provider, which is my millennial nightmare for the record, they call, wait on hold, set it up for you, and then dial you in when they're ready for you to make the confirmation to the 401k provider that yes, you in fact want to move it and you're giving them authorization to do so. Capitalize is a completely free service. At first I was skeptical of that, but they get paid a commission by the some of the brokerage firms that you can transfer your assets to. So it's completely free to you, completely on the up and up. And I highly, highly recommend using them if you need to roll over a 401k. There's just no reason to suffer through the paperwork otherwise. And I will add that now that I've abandoned my backdoor Roth IRA strategy and I'm using a mega backdoor Roth IRA instead, I can have as many rollover IRAs as I want, which means I get all of it under my control, low fees, my you know choices of assets within them, which is amazing. So you can check out Capitalize at the link in my show notes if this sounds like something that you would be interested in. 
they've got two thumbs up from me. That's for sure. So Capitalize, thank you so much for sponsoring today's episode. Today, I want to talk about a topic that I first covered a few years ago, but it kind of made a sentimental comeback for me because of Christmas and the materialism inherent in Maybe I shouldn't say inherent in the holidays, but to some extent, it is a time when there's a lot of new stuff being exchanged. You're being given gifts, you're giving gifts. Oftentimes, it's stuff that you maybe don't want. Sometimes maybe it's stuff that you do want, but I I just had this sense during the Christmas season of like, holy shit, there's just so much stuff everywhere, whether it's baked goods, alcohol, presents under the tree, boxes that are from Amazon that I need to figure something out to do with them. And it just it just reminded me of this idea that in some ways, having a lot of stuff and specifically a lot of nice stuff might actually be making your life worse. And I think that it's an interesting topic in the personal finance world specifically because it doesn't intuitively make sense Like, you wouldn't expect that having nice things could in some ways make your life worse, but hear me out. My first car, I loved it. It was a 2004 Acura TL. It was given to me by my dad. He used my 16th birthday like an excuse to pawn off his old car on his ecstatic teenage daughter and buy a used BMW. And my mom, who I jokingly called the frugal overlord of House Gaddy, was on board with the plan. So that made it more attractive for everybody. And I was pumped. Um, I will note here that there is obviously privilege in the fact that I was given my first car when I began driving. I absolutely had friends that either had to pay for their own cars or weren't allowed to get cars. So whether that was your experience or not, I just, I want to acknowledge that like, that was a very fortunate thing that happened to me and is rare. But this car, it had over 100,000 miles on it. And it was, I think, eight years old when I received it. Yeah, eight years old. So it was well past its prime, but it was a car and a pretty cool one. And it had some door dings and the leather seats were ripped up and there were coffee stains on the floor in the back seat from my dad's friends um, that he would drive to work with. But I just remember when I got the keys to the TL, I was so excited. And I tried to keep it nice for a while, but just over time, it like really, it, it got kind of beaten to shit. So it was hit while it was parked on the road. Um, it would have required like $3,000 in repair work, but the car wasn't even worth $3,000 by the time that happened. So We didn't have collision insurance on the car. And yeah, I basically just drove it around with a bashed rear end for almost a year. So flash forward to the day when I got a brand new 2017 Acura RDX. It was a dream come true. And I remember before I turned 16, all I wanted was an RDX. I have no idea why. I didn't even know anyone that had one. Really strange, but I just was obsessed with that car. I actually remember when I was a kid, I had a scooter, like an electric scooter, and I taped a picture of an Escalade to the scooter. I I like printed out a Google image search result of Cadillac Escalade. I have no idea why I was so infatuated with that car. It was like, even when I was a little kid, I like knew what status, I was aware of status. 
in northern Kentucky, where, like, I, again, didn't even know anybody that had an Escalade. And I remember a babysitter once was like, what is that for? Like, does your mom have that car? And I was like, no. <laughs> so, anyway, um, interestingly, yes, I got this Acura RDX when I graduated from college. It was brand new. And before the RDX, if I spilled something in my TL or left a yoga mat in the back seat that was sweaty and stinky and like melted in the Texas heat, I didn't really care because the car's purpose was literally just to take me from point A to point B. I didn't really care about its condition. I think I got maybe one car wash for that car. I mean, it was kind of pathetic. I really didn't take very good care of it, but it was a great car. And everything changed when I got that RDX. It earned the garage spot. So my mom's practical Subaru got exiled to the driveway and uh, free street parking, like no, absolutely not. I always paid for the expensive covered parking or like a proper parking lot. That was the only place I felt comfortable parking that car. There was even an incident that my college friends loved to shit on me for in which I took them out for tacos um, like the week after I got this car and before they got in the, back in the car after dinner, I literally made them all go wash their hands because I was nervous that they were going to get grease on the interior, which is just embarrassing. So I loved that RDX, but it definitely carried a whole different set of stressors that my TL did not. Because the TL was worth $2,000 and the RDX was brand new and, you know, a thirty-eight dollars or $40,000 car. I mean, I really, I felt like I, I had this responsibility to take care of it that I just didn't really feel with the TL. And I think this story, it, it serves the purpose of expressing that so, you know, so perfectly it illustrates this. It's never just the upfront cost of something. Every single cost that you incur down the road with something that is expensive and luxury is higher too. It's never just the first thing. I think this is called the Diderot effect. My husband Thomas shared a article about this in his weekly newsletter, The Sunday Review, a couple weeks ago, where, you know, this guy is kind of explaining a very similar phenomenon. He got a high income and then he started spending the high income and so he buys this motorcycle and then he realizes, oh, well, this motorcycle is only cool if it has all these customizations and like, oh, well, in order to actually use this motorcycle, I need to have a truck that can like take it to interesting locales. And his whole point was that it's never just the first purchase. One purchase begets more purchases. And if you want to get really specific with the RDX, I would get that car washed every month professionally. So that was a 30 minute task that cost me $20 every time. It required expensive premium gas because I was not going to put regular in it, even though you can bet your ass I was putting regular in that 15 year old Acura TL. Um, I never ended up parking it on the street and uh, still got a door ding in the Target parking lot. Was absolutely distraught that there was a dent in this car. Um, my insurance on the TL was $600 a year. It went up to $1,500 a year with the RDX because there is just more to insure. It's a nicer car. So same premise. The, the one expensive purchase is never just one expensive purchase. It always creates this level of momentum and obligation and responsibility. 
which is why even though now I don't even have a car now, the lease ended on the RDX, I bought an Audi, long story short, I sold the Audi after a year, I don't have a car now. But the bottom line is that even now when I lust after the white Porsche Macan, I can objectively look at that and say, if I buy that car, I have to accept that that's a $70,000 purchase out of pocket and then many years of expensive maintenance, gas, cleaning, the mental weight of having a car that costs that much sitting in your driveway, aware that, you know, if anything happens to it, it's going to cost you a lot of money to fix. So it's not just the financial cost, but there's a mental cost associated with it too. So I think it can all be very neatly summed up in the sentiment that the more you own, the more owns you. And there is an odd liberation to owning low value stuff, to driving a shitty car. It's like, okay, great. Everyone pile in with your dirty shoes, work out with your sweaty clothes on, like, welcome. Let's all eat a four course meal in my sedan. Uh, and you know, I'm, I was happy and grateful for that beautiful RDX, but it stressed me out a lot more than my old car did. And if you own a 50 or $60,000 BMW or Audi or Porsche, whatever, you're probably going to think twice about parking it in a tight spot. You are probably going to buy the nicest gas. You are probably going to get it washed and you're probably going to buy the best insurance and you're going to take it to the dealer to get the most expensive maintenance. Like imagine getting in an accident with a new $50,000 car and how much worse it would feel than if you were driving a used car that was worth $5,000. And it's not just cars. It's, you know, it's other things of that scale. Like consider getting a designer handbag. Everybody knows the story about my Louis Vuitton bag, the one that I bought when I got my first job offer. And to me at 22 years old, like that purse it represented the pinnacle of wealth and success to me because I knew chic and beautiful and rich women that carried them and technically like, you know, other young women my age with chic, beautiful, rich parents because no one in my you know age group at the time really could afford them. And I just had to have one. And, you know, I, I still like the bag, but was it really worth $1,300? Probably not. I used it a lot when I first got it, but it turns out that tote bags are all not all that practical or comfortable for everyday life, which was something that I hadn't really, you know, thought of at the time because I wasn't buying it because it was practical and comfortable. I was buying it because it was a status symbol. And honestly, the crazy thing is that after I got that bag, I just started paying more attention to Louis Vuitton bags. I became more interested in acquiring more of them, which is exactly the opposite outcome that I had expected from plunking down $1,300 to buy one. I took a $700 Louis Vuitton crossbody bag to a football game with me, and it was one inch too large to be taken into the stadium because they measure your bags when you go into an NFL stadium, apparently. Not that I go to NFL games all the time, but for this one time when I did, found that out the hard way. And the security man told me, hey, you, you literally cannot bring this in this game. I don't care that there's nothing in it. I don't care that, you know, nothing set off the metal detector. It's literally just too large to be carried into the stadium. You need to take it back to your car. So there I was walking my happy ass a mile back to the car to put it in there before entering. So there I was like horrible feeling of... I just spent 15 bucks on this beer buzz that I acquired at the star next door. And now I have to lose it to go drop off my fancy purse in my car 
And I remember at the time noticing that I was passing other women that were facing the same decision at security. Like they were taking their wallets and phones out of their $20 Target purses and literally throwing them in the garbage and just continuing on their merry way into the stadium. And it was this moment where I asked myself, what is the point of owning something so fancy and expensive that even when it majorly inconveniences you, it is too prohibitively valuable to simply just discard and move on? And at this point in my life, it's kind of hard for me to identify with the version of me that, you know, happily spent four figures on a purse. I really don't think I could see myself doing that now. Not because I don't love designer things, but just because I don't think I would want something badly enough. Maybe I would, but I don't know. I just, I, there's nothing in my life now that I could think I would want badly enough to pay for it like that. It's also probably due to the fact that I actually work for my money now and I wasn't just, I'm not just receiving this abstract offer on a piece of paper like I was at the time, but the value of $1,300 to me now just feels so much more acute. So as a particularly masochistic exercise, I thought, what would have happened to that $1,300 in a low fee index fund instead? And it, yeah. I mean, over 30 years, it compounds a lot. It, it'd be worth probably closer to thirteen dollars to $15,000. And now I'll have a handbag that's not worth even half that. So again, it's not bad. I'm not trying to dunk on myself. I don't even fully regret it because I think it taught me a really good lesson. And I do like the purse, but it's just not a choice that I would make again. And I, I was searching, you know, when I was originally kind of writing this post and, and, and thinking about it for the purposes of this podcast episode. And there is one rare positive example that I have to offer because I was thinking like, man, where in my life have I observed the opposite to be true? Like, where could I point to my own behavior and say, see, like, this is how it feels to uh, not have your possessions own you. And it was hard for me to think of something because I've fallen victim to this trap so many times as a self-identified reformed materialist that I can really only think of one category in which I've seen the opposite, you know, proven true time and time again for me in my life. And that's on shoes. I really never spend more than $100 on a pair of shoes. Uh, usually I spend, you know, 50 bucks. Like I'm pretty rough on my shoes, so I tend to break them quickly. And I guess you could you could play a chicken or the egg thing there and say, well, are they breaking quickly because they're cheap or because you're you know rough on them? But when I was in Mexico a couple years ago, I was walking down the beach in a pair of these like three-year-old rubbery Jack Rogers shoes, and I think I paid forty bucks for them. And one of the straps finally just ripped off; it popped right out of the shoe, and I literally was like, oh well, and just threw them in the trash. <laughs> Have another mojito, right? Like it didn't matter to me. Um, I had this pair of black suede pumps that I got at Dillard's in high school and they were literally stolen from a nightclub in Atlanta when I left them on the ground to dance on a table. This is a true story. I'm a wholesome role model. And I literally just went back to the hotel barefoot and I was just sad that I couldn't stay out that night because I didn't have any shoes. The shoes were worthless. So I don't really know what the thief would have done with them except throw them away anyway. But the point is, that's an area of my life where my purchases serve me. They make my life easier. 
And when they stop fulfilling that purpose and disappear or break or no longer serve me, they go in the garbage without a second thought. And I really don't think I would feel that way if they were $300 Chanel sandals or $800 Louboutin pumps. Like that would have been a very different story with a very different outcome if someone stole $800 shoes out from under that table at the nightclub. That would have ruined that entire trip. But because the shoes were cheap and shitty, it was like, whatever, I'm just gonna go home then. So I think without question, there are definitely times when you get more for your money. And a lot of the times I think it is a balancing act. Like if you buy stuff that's too cheap, it'll just need to be constantly replaced and it'll cause more of an inconvenience because you're having to constantly spend money and time fixing it or replacing it. But it's almost like that rule for checked luggage. Like don't buy anything that you would be devastated to lose. There truly is middle ground between a broken down Toyota Camry and a new fully loaded G-Wagon. There is middle ground between a canvas tote bag and a Louis Vuitton one. You can still be satisfied with your purchases without buying on the Kardashian end of the spectrum. And I, I think I would argue that you will actually be happier in the long run when you detach from this notion that the more expensive something is, the better it's going to make your life. I even saw this, you know, played out in my skincare routine. I used to spend so much money on skincare, on heavily branded products. And I was disappointed time after time. And it's crazy because I finally realized that these like scented, beautifully packaged, jojoba infused products, it was just a $50 complex version of an $8 product, jojoba oil, that you can buy at Whole Foods in its purest form. And I shit you not, when I stopped buying the fancy stuff, my skin got better. So I think it's, it's, it's this idea of honing your ability to invest in things of true value versus that perceived worldly value. And it, it really does have the power to make things easier and more convenient and less stressful. And I think consumerism will tell you that, hey, nicer things will make you happier. But I do think you got to remember, like, who's going to profit from you believing that? Who, who profits from you splurging on the fancy car? The car company, the insurance company, the car wash business, like the list goes on. And, and usually the person that's the bottom of the list is you, because as soon as the novelty wears off, it's kind of like, okay, well now what? So I am of the opinion now in my life that I've kind of swung on both ends of the spectrum. I used to be super materialistic and I, I was very obsessed with brand names and I, I think to some degree I still feel that way deep down. Like I think it's hard to fully deprogram or unprogram that part of you, especially if it's a huge aspect of what you're interested in. Like if you really like fashion or you really like handbags or really like cars, it's obviously gonna look a little bit different for you. But I think when I swung in the opposite direction of I'm gonna buy everything as cheaply as possible and you know nice things don't matter at all it's like that's probably too extreme too i do think that there's a balanced middle ground that we each just have to kind of identify for ourselves and i think it starts with paying attention to how you feel about the things that you're acquiring and being honest with yourself is this actually making my life better 
Or is this just introducing a level of financial and mental responsibility that I actually don't even really want? And that's all for now, my friends. So I would actually love to know how that sits with you and if it resonates and if you were listening to that episode thinking about, oh my gosh, you know what? Actually, like this totally makes sense and now it explains why I freaking hate my juicy velour tracksuit. Just kidding. We could never. But in all seriousness, let me know. Email podcasts at moneywithkatie.com. I just stuttered. Podcast, singular, at moneywithkatie.com and let me know what you think. All right, my dudes, I will see you next week, same time, same place on the Money with Katie podcast.